The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information on our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. So today is a special day. Uh, Today is Super Bowl Sunday. Go Chiefs! As well as it is the first couple days of February, as well as, if you were unaware, today is Groundhog's Day. February 2nd is what's known as Groundhog's Day. And if you're unaware, if you haven't caught the news, Punxsutawney Phil, he didn't see his shadow today, which means that it will be an early spring, or as we like to say here in San Antonio, it doesn't matter either way, because we haven't really had winter yet. Uh, It just means that the hot summer is probably going to be a little bit closer to us now. Uh, What a joy it is to to open the Word of God with you this morning. If you've been with us the past few weeks, we've been walking slowly through the book of Romans. We've been in the first chapter of the book of Romans, and we'll be there again this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to Romans chapter 1. We'll be in there. Um, Today we're going to look at verses 16 and 17 specifically. And in this section, we begin to see a transition. We are transitioning here between the introduction that we've walked through from Paul into what I'd like to call the meat and potatoes of the book of Romans. Uh, by the way, last week we had a phenomenal time after service of a seminar where we um, had the opportunity to discuss some questions. Um, that continues. If you have questions, feel free to still text them in to, to that same number. Uh, we will be answering those questions kind of as we, we can. So this morning, as I said, we'll be in uh, Romans chapter 1 in verses 16 and 17. Uh, before we get into that, though, I'd love to tell you just a really quick story. So the year is 1520, and we are in Germany. Uh, a document has been distributed around Um, and it's got the official seal of the Pope. He is the leader of the church at this time, um, and it's being distributed commonly. We say it's being distributed now by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, That distinction, though, at this time has not yet been established. This is the church as we know it. We don't yet have denominations or uh, multiple churches throughout the city. There's pretty much one church for each city, and they were all underneath the direction of the Pope. This official letter that we receive is known as a papal bull. Papal meaning from the Pope, and bull referring to the seal that would be upon this letter. This is a big deal. Think of this as an official document from both the governing authority as well as the spiritual authority. You don't ignore these. As we open this document and spread out the letter, it it reads this small sentence. It says, Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause. A wild boar has invaded thy vineyard. That's it. Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause. A wild boar has invaded thy vineyard. As I said, this letter was distributed rather widely. Uh, But because of the timing of things, it comes from Rome. We're in Germany. It took us about three months to actually receive this letter. As we read this letter, though, we know exactly what it's referring to, and we also know whom it is referencing. Where will we stand with regards to this letter? Let's take a few more steps back, even further. The year is 1483. 
And a son is born to Margaret and Hans Luder. Hans had worked in the copper mines all of his life, and he desired for his son to have a better career and a better life. Working in the copper mines, of course, as you can imagine, is not the most glamorous of jobs or the cleanest of jobs. Their son, Martin, was sent off to be a lawyer. Martin was very bright, and he ended up flying through both his undergraduate as well as his uh, graduate studies. In fact, he flew so fast that the university was the only thing that kept him from flying through it faster. He was a talented speaker and could debate anyone. He enjoyed these debates. He enjoyed these discussions. It gave him a chance to stretch his mind and also determine his own beliefs on issues. At the age of 22, uh, Martin was just simply walking down the road. He was walking down the road and ends up getting caught in a thunderstorm. It was a pretty intense storm, and as he's walking, a bolt of lightning crashes near him and ends up knocking him to the ground. Martin, of course, being a sensible man, is terrified at this moment. Have you heard the expression of there are no atheists in foxholes? This expression means that in times of extreme pressure, of extreme, extreme stress, with the threat of death being imminent, everyone looks towards a higher power. For Martin, in this moment, he calls out possibly to the only higher power he knew of. He calls out to Saint Anne, who is the saint of precious mining, of precious metals. He declares to Saint Anne that if I survive, I will become a monk. He requests protection upon his life and also ties with it this vow. As it turns out, Martin survives, and he ends up upholding his declaration. He ends up giving up away all of his possessions, and he ends up going to an, an Augustinian monastery in the city of Erfurt. His parents, of course, having paid for his education to become a lawyer, are a little upset. He's now throwing away all of this education, and he's entering into a life that they had not planned. Martin was a phenomenal monk. He later says this, he says, I kept the rule so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his sheer monkery, it was I. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other works. I love it because it includes the word monkery. The rule that Martin kept here, where he says, I kept this rule, was a system of do's and don'ts. It was set by a guy named Benedict uh, around 515 AD. So it included set times of reading, set times of prayer, and set times of work. Benedict wanted to always keep the monks extremely busy. Monks worked very hard underneath what was known as the rule. Benedict saw the role of the monk as a complete surrender to God. This meant that you surrendered everything that you had and everything that you are, including what we would call your downtime, any waking or sleeping, any minute that you have should be used to glorify God. Benedict thought that the best way to glorify God would be through prayer, through praise, and through hard work. So Martin, being underneath this rule, worked extremely hard as a monk. But he never quite felt satisfied. 
He continually felt that no matter much, how much he tried to please God with his work, with his prayers, with his singing, with his reading, God would never be pleased. Martin knew his own sin, and it crushed him. He continually felt underneath the burden of his sinful heart. Uh, he would see his own sin and see his perfect God who knew his sin. He knew that God knew every hair upon his head and every sin within his heart. This terrified him. Martin would continually punish himself to hopefully fulfill the wrath of God. He would sleep in the cold without a blanket. He would fast for days on end. He would try and punish himself and work extremely hard doing good things to still feel that God was not pleased. As a dad, I've seen my own children do this. So you want to have kids that whenever they know that they've messed up, suddenly want to do every chore on the face of the earth. They're desiring to, in essence, punish themselves in hopes that, therefore, I don't punish them or punish them possibly less. Martin here is striving for the same thing, but with a much better dad. The only comfort that Martin ever felt was whenever he said he studied Scripture. It was from this study of Scripture that led Martin to be the Martin Luther that we know today. Luther ends up reading the exact same text that we're reading this morning of Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Fast forward, the year is now 1515. Luther has been a monk. He's been in this monastery for about 10 years. These were a hard 10 years. He continually felt the wrath of God was upon him. He felt that no matter how much good he did or how much punishment he placed upon himself, he did never measure up. There are quite a few people in here today. Um, I don't know where everyone is at, but statistics would tell me that uh, some people in here feel the same way that Martin Luther felt almost 500 years ago. It feels as if you are unloved by God, no matter how much you strive to please Him. You know that no amount of punishment done to yourself is enough compared to your own sin. It feels as if there's no amount of good that you can do that will please God. It's as if we have a scale, and on one side sits our holy and our righteous God, and on the other side is us trying to please God through our actions of pleasure towards God and punishment towards ourselves. As we look towards this text this morning, the same truth that pierced the heart of Martin Luther is the same truth I pray will pierce our hearts today. God is not sitting on or above a scale looking towards our actions, but is instead looking towards the actions of his Son on our behalf. I hope today that we will rest in the power and the righteousness of God. Will you read with me Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16? It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this, once again, is Paul writing to the people of Rome. Uh, let me like, make one clarifying statement from last week. Justin mentioned a couple times uh, that he was desiring to get back to Rome, and some of you picked up on this. 
Justin, I talked to them this week. He's like, I should have said back because he hasn't been there yet. He's desiring to get to Rome um, and back to some of the people that he's met before. Paul is writing this letter to a church that he knows nothing about directly, uh, but still yearns to be with them. These two verses here of 16 and 17 um, ended up having a huge impact on the history of the church. And my hope today is that it has a just as huge of an impact on our hearts today. From these two, fir- two verses began what came to be known as the Reformation. We stand here today worshiping in the way that we do because of the fire that these two verses caused. Let that same fire cause the refining of our own hearts today. Paul begins in verse 16 with a conjunction. He has a conjunction of four. He's tying what, has, or what he's about to say with uh, what he has previously said. As we looked at last week, Paul says he feels an obligation and an eagerness to preach the gospel to these people. It's from verse 14 and 15. Let's just stop here and ask, do you feel that same obligation and that same eagerness to preach the gospel which has saved you? One of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to, to gather with new believers. Um, I love to be a, Christian, or be, a, or be a Christian around Christians who don't yet have their Christianese completely solidified. They are not fluent yet in the things that we say. Uh, I love to hear statements such as, I don't know how to study the Bible. For me as a pastor, I'm like, yes, let's go. Let's, let's start getting together. I, I enjoy being around new believers. I love to walk us alongside these brothers and these sisters. There's a zeal within them that is contagious. They have seen the light of the gospel, and they desire for everyone they know to see this exact same light. Missions and evangelism are words that they might not know, but they know that what they have experienced should be experienced by everyone. They feel that same obligation and eagerness that Paul felt. I'll ask again, do you feel obligated and an eagerness today? Maybe you do, or maybe you don't. Paul continues this thought, though, within our first line of verse 16. He says here that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Ouch. Paul, we've just evaluated our own hearts regarding preaching of the gospel, and sometimes we confess that we do not feel very eager And Paul here asks a rhetorical question. Am I ashamed of the gospel? I think every believer would answer that question with an emphatic no. However, what is it that my actions are saying? Does the way that I choose to live my life show my shame of the gospel? Or does it show my love and my gratitude for the gospel? Justin said last week that the sermons that you preach every day will be remembered far greater than the sermons which are preached from this pulpit. What sermon are you preaching? Is it a sermon of your own glory, or is it a sermon of a life changed by the gospel? I desire for every person walking out of this room this morning to wrestle internally with this question, are you ashamed of the gospel? On the first Sunday of every month, we get the joy and the privilege to have our elementary students in here. God has granted me two phenomenal pieces of sanctification. Uh, Their names are Grayson and Charlie, my two children. What would it look like if I, as a dad, 
were ashamed of my son, Grayson. Grayson, you are my son. Uh, Because of that, you get to be in a lot of my sermon illustrations. Son, I'm not ashamed of you, okay? Just using this so hopefully we can understand a little bit better. If I were ashamed of my son, Grayson, though, what would that look like? Well, I probably wouldn't have pointed him out. He probably wouldn't have stood up and raised his hands as I figured he probably would. I probably would have asked him maybe to sit in the back corner. Um, I would desire for him to be hidden, for him to not speak, for him to not be seen. I would desire for him to be as bold as this lovely paint we have on the walls, nice and subdued where you don't really even see it. Or maybe I would have asked him to be sick today. Son, you might feel like you have a fever. It's probably best if you just stay home today so you don't reveal my shame. Maybe I wouldn't even have had him come today. If I were really ashamed of him, then I probably wouldn't have invited you over to my house. If I did, though, I would make sure that my shame was hidden. It was stay upstairs for me. I would compartmentalize my life in a way that would have control over when and where I chose to display my son. I might be a family man with two kids around those where it benefits me in circumstances where it's a blessing to me, or only in the areas of life where I know that you can understand my shame. See, Grayson is mine. He, he was given to me by God. I have the duty now to showcase this huge blessing within my life. Grayson, there is no reason for, you to be, for me to be ashamed of you as my son. Church, I am afraid, though, that we are ashamed of the gospel. There seems to be a compartmentalization of our faith. We love to sing praises to God here. This is our area where my belief in the gospel is accepted and it is rejoiced. Of course, sitting here in this moment, we would all probably say that we are not ashamed of the gospel. What happens, though, when we leave this place? Are we ashamed of the gospel? Within our workplaces, are we ashamed of the gospel? Within our homes and with our families, are we ashamed of the gospel? Within our schools, are we ashamed of the gospel? Again, what do my actions say? Do my actions show that I am ashamed or not ashamed of the gospel? Maybe this morning I asked about your obligation, your eagerness to to preach the gospel, and it caused some guilt to possibly rise up within you? Is it shame of the gospel which leads you to a lack of eagerness? Is it a doubt, possibly, in the gospel? Is it not the power to save? Is the gospel lacking? Paul goes on here, and he gives us a small definition of the gospel that he is speaking about. He says it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Power is a word that I feel we have come quite numb to because of uh, some of the time that we live in and our access to electricity. The Romans, however, whenever they read this, would, would have read this with a different lens and a different understanding. We today can flip a switch and power it on or power it off. I just got a couple of smart outlets within my home. They are fantastic. I can now walk into my office in the morning and I say, 
Google turn on the office lights, and ta-da, all of my lights come on. I feel like there is a small glimpse of the joy God felt when he created the world through his own voice. As I walk to my office every morning, I, I feel a small glimpse of the power and the joy that God must have felt in speaking the world into existence with my smart outlets and my light bulbs. The word power, though, in the Greek is a word dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite from. This isn't a small or a simple power, but an explosive power. It can cause mountains to crumble. This is the power that Paul is referring to here. This power, though, isn't meant in a manner of blowing up your life or blowing away other people or other religions, but something much greater. It's the power of salvation for everyone, to the Jew and to the Greek, to the old and to the young, to the wealthy and to the poor. This is the all-encompassing power of salvation. To the monk walking on the road in a thunderstorm, to the driver in 2020, this is the power of salvation for all who believe. Whether your salvation occurred in the last week, the last month, or many years ago, do you still see the explosive power found within it? Your salvation is the power of God on full display. He sent His Son to die for you and for me. The Bible makes it clear that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. We, like Martin Luther, know our own hearts, know our own sin. There's no amount of work or no amount of punishment against ourselves which will justify us. The Bible says that God demonstrated his love to us by sending his son while we were yet still sinners. He demonstrated his power by placing his son upon the cross. His son demonstrated his power by conquering death and sin once and for all. His Spirit demonstrates His power yet today by conforming us to look more like Him. God will once again demonstrate His power through salvation at our deaths. We will reign with Him forever one day. This is the power of God on complete display. Paul then goes on and presents us with a statement of historical timing. The gospel was first given to the Jew and then to the Greek. We see this throughout Scripture in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as the book of Acts. It's also throughout the Bible as a whole. Where does that leave you and I, though? Paul seems to be continually narrowing down the power of God for salvation. He first says it's for everyone, then says it's for everyone who believes, Then he goes on to say it's for the Jew and the Greek. I am neither Jew nor Greek. If we remember back to the text last week, verse 14, Paul says he's obligated to the Greek and the barbarians. It's a statement of inclusivity, not a statement of degradation. In verse 14, Paul is saying that it is for everyone. Here in verse 16, he's again saying that salvation is for everyone who believes. This has been a theme the past couple of weeks, so I won't touch on it much, but I would direct you to our previous sermons the past two weeks. As we continue on, let's look at verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Paul here begins the same way that he did with 16. He begins it with the conjunction, same one, the conjunction of four. This is once again pointing us back. This time, he's pointing us back to what he has just articulated, the gospel. He shows us that the gospel not only declares the power of God, but he takes it a step further. It also declares God's righteousness. The statement regarding God's righteousness is a twofold statement. There are two pieces to this. First, it is a theological statement. It is a statement which gives us a glimpse in an attribute or a character trait of God. He is righteous. What does that mean, though, that God is righteous? Well, it means that he is just. The gospel doesn't go around the righteousness of God. God didn't say that sin must be covered by blood and then contradict himself with our salvation. Sin is still here, and it still requires a blood covering. In the killing of an animal, in the shedding of blood, we see the wrath of God upon sin. In the gospel, we see Christ. God did not overlook sin, but the sacrifice was paid. In the Old Testament, we see this picture with the story of the Passover from Exodus chapter 12. Israel was required to select an unblemished lamb and to slaughter it. They were then to spread the blood upon their door frames. God then passed through Egypt and passed over every house that blood was on the doorpost. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. God shows us that he doesn't just overlook our sin, but instead looks upon the sacrifice. See, our sin is dealt with. It isn't that God has simply removed the punishment of sin. That wouldn't be just, and it would not be righteous. Imagine if we were in a courtroom, there's someone on trial here for committing a crime. And the judge says, I'm just going to ignore that you committed that crime. This isn't just. It might be merciful, but it is not just or righteous. The gospel, though, shows the righteousness in God by placing the punishment upon his own son. His son, in taking that punishment, then gives you his righteousness while you give him your sin. This is the righteousness of God on full display. He placed his own son upon the cross to display his righteousness. As I said, the statement of the gospel showing the righteousness of God is twofold. First, it declares who God is. It it gives us a, a glimpse into who God is, a theological statement, an understanding of God. But it also declares within this statement of who we are. The gospel reveals that we are declared as righteous. We are given the righteousness of Christ. This was not of our own doing, but instead the mercy and grace of God himself. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10 says this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, 
I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. The righteousness that we have is not from the law. It isn't from our actions of doing right and avoiding wrong. It isn't because we have the right name, the right ethnicity, the right heritage, the right nation. It rests completely and solely on Christ. It is because of the gospel. Paul says that his righteousness is from faith, and to, or for, depending on your translation, faith. Philippians states the exact same thing. It is only through faith in Christ that this righteousness is obtained. It is from faith that we are justified, and it is for faith that we are sanctified. Paul was holding up the law and the gospel with both hands for the Romans to see, both the old covenant and the new. It is by faith and through faith that salvation comes. It is from faith that the power of God and His righteousness are evidenced. It is faith in the God who saves. It is faith in the gospel. It is faith in the salvation of God for those who believe. Again, I don't know everyone's story within here. I do know this, though. The Word of God is clear. Salvation is here, and salvation is available for all who believe. This morning, do you believe that is true? Do you believe that God demonstrates His power and His righteousness through His gospel? through the work of His Son upon the cross. I urge us all to rest in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. There is nothing that we can do to justify ourselves or make ourselves righteous. No matter how much we try, we get nowhere. Our justification and our righteousness rest completely in the completed work of Christ. This is where Martin Luther began to see the truth of the gospel. He read these lines, including the last section, that the righteous shall live by faith. As a monk, his view of righteousness was different than our view right now. He saw righteousness as something that the believer would continually have to strive for. Righteousness was a working out of your faith. It was not a once-and-done moment, but a timeline of consistency. It was doing the right things and avoiding the wrong. It was a system of right and of wrong. It's where Luther really began to struggle. If he were to be righteous, then how could he still be a sinner and obtain this righteousness? He continually would strive for God to look upon him without seeing his sin. This was an impossible feat. He and we are still sinners. 
We aren't declared as righteous because we are free from sin. We are declared as righteous because God sees His Son. He sees the perfect and the spotless Lamb. Luther, after studying this, begins to see it more clearly. Man is only saved by his faith in the work of Christ's sacrifice. This understanding clashed with the Roman Catholic Church of the 15th and the 16th century. Luther had a decision to make at this point. It is, in fact, the same decision that we must also make. Is the cross worthy? Is the cross worthy? Is the cross worthy of, and fill in the blank, is the cross worthy of losing my friendships? Is the cross worthy of losing a job? Is the cross worthy of me losing my reputation? Is the cross worthy? Luther felt it was, and he began to speak to many about justification by faith alone. It was on October 31st of 1517 that Luther made his public declaration. He wrote out 95 statements, what we would call today his 95 theses, and he nails them to the church doors in Wittenberg. This started him down a trail that could not be stopped. The church felt that Luther was directly attacking them and their authority. Luther would be a wild boar in the vineyard as he spoke the truth of Scripture. I believe that Luther could claim the same words as Paul. He would say he was under obligation, and he was eager to preach the gospel, and he was not ashamed of the gospel. Christian today is the same true of you. Do you have faith in the power and the righteousness of God? I urge you then, proclaim the gospel. God has placed you exactly where you need to be, your home, your job, your schools. Do not be ashamed of this gospel that has saved you. Have confidence in the power and the righteousness of God. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we stand amazed in the way that you have ordained. Father, as we look upon our own sin, Father, there is a desire often within me, Lord, to try and please you with my right actions, and Father, with avoiding of the wrongs. Father, I confess, Lord, that I am often looking upon myself for my own salvation. Instead of looking upon your Son, Father, who has saved me. Father, as we read this text and we see of Paul's obligation and his eagerness, his lack of shame to proclaim the gospel. Father, I pray that it stirs within our hearts. Father, the same obligation, the same eagerness to proclaim the gospel. Father, we know that your plan for salvation of the world is through the church. Father, I pray that we as Stone Oak Bible 
would live into this plan. Father, we would be missional. Father, we'd be evangelistic. Father, that the truth of the gospel does not remain within our, our hearts and our lips alone. Father, but because of what you have given us, Father, we cannot help but be loud. Father, as we look towards our own hearts, Father, and evaluate our own motives, Father, I pray that we look on our own shame of the gospel. Father, I pray, the Lord, that whatever it is that holds us back, Father, that you would give us your power and your strength to push through. Father, we thank you that you are powerful. Father, that you have spoke the world into existence. Father, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Father, you have not set us and left us, Father, but you are with us, even in this moment today. Father, I pray that you would reveal yourselves to us. Father, I pray that you would use us as your mouthpiece, that we truly would be the bride of Christ. Father, we thank you for your righteousness. God, that you are just. Lord, that you have not simply looked over, Father. But we thank you for Christ who has taken our punishment upon the cross. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Father, may we be a people of the gospel in all things that we do. Father, we pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Will you stand with us this morning?